Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon, or as I call it, the podcast that loves you, the podcast where fascinating people meet. And I am so grateful to uh, have all the guests that I have. You know, there was something on um, something. Oh, actually, it's Podbean, another podcast app. And on Twitter, they ask a lot of questions of podcasters. And one of the questions was uh, this week, who is your dream guest for your podcast? Who is your dream guest? And, and, and I don't always answer these, but this time I had to. I said, every guest I have is a dream guest because I'm grateful that, one, they accepted the invitation, or sometimes maybe their publicists reach out asking uh, if they ask to have them on the show, and sometimes the, the guests themselves will ask. And sometimes... Uh, Sometimes their fans will ask, and that's great. All of it's great. Um, I had a couple of reviews I read of the podcast that said it doesn't matter if the guest is a famous person or someone you've never heard of, if it's uh, uh, if they write or act or work in a field or genre that you like or something that you don't know of that you've never heard of before, that it's always interesting. The guest is always interesting. And I was so grateful for that because I I, I value every listener and every guest. So, I said, yeah, every guest is a dream guest. And that, of course, especially includes tonight's guest. Uh, he's been on here, I think, twice before. He, he has an incredible career. A couple of careers, actually, and as a musician, for what? And when I say musician, I'm talking legit, serious, on the road, uh, popular musician, and as a writer, as screenwriter, this man <laughs> does a lot. So I'm going to go ahead and bring him in right now because I am thrilled and delighted to have him all the way from the UK where he lives, and that is the one and only Graham Slater. Graham, welcome. Hi, Jennifer. Nice to be with you, and uh, very nice things you said there. Wonderful. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, every guest is a, uh, is a dream guest for me. So, I mean, there's more people I'd like to have, but a lot of the people I, I have had on, I, wait, I can't wait to have them back, like you. So, um in fact, I think I may have had one of your friends or musical contemporaries on not long ago, uh, Chris White. Uh, you did, from a... Liverpool, Manchester, yeah, yeah. Oh, is he? Okay, cool. Well, Joe Chris Symes, White. yeah? Well, Joe Symes, yeah, definitely. But I was thinking, also, Chris White, one of the original members of the Zombies. That's right, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And so, yeah, oh my gosh, yeah, Joe Symes and Colin... And the drummer for Joe Symes, the lovely kind, Colin White, two of my favorite guys. That's it. Yeah, Colin, yeah. Uh, we're on. Graham, I, you know, there's so much you've got, so much I want to cover about you and your career uh, as a musician, as a writer, and as always, I don't know where to start. There's so much. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a banquet where you don't know where to start. You know, well, the dessert looks so good. Do you want to just <laughs> okay. skip everything and go there well, let, or what? Let, let, well, let's start to eat, Jennifer. Let's do it. Okay. All right. Um, you have an, a, a new book uh, out this year, and it is your am – I, am I right that it's your ninth? It's my ninth novel, but my tenth book. I did, um, I did write a, what I call a write-on, and it was a book for, for authors. When I speak on the ships, a lot of people come to the talks, and they say, look, we don't know where to start. So – they said, why don't you write a book? As well as doing your talks, why don't you write a book that we can buy? Um, because we don't remember everything you've said. So 
I came up with the title right on, W-R-I-T-E, <laughs> and um, it, 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 it sells really well. So I've actually written 10 books, but nine novels, yeah, yeah. All right. And we'll get to also to you uh, teaching about writing class, but your ninth novel is called Born to Run, and congratulations. Uh-huh. And uh, give us, for people who, who are new to the books and new to you, give us an idea what's, what they can expect in Born to Run. Well, Born to Run, like most of my others, is a thriller, and it follows on from two books earlier. I wrote a novel about four years ago called Love Shack, which was set in the red light district of Amsterdam. And I finished it with a fire on New Year's Eve. It's set in the year 2000, 1999-2000. And there was a fire at the Love Shack, which was a bar and a brothel. And people interviewed me and people that read it said, well, you can't leave it there. You've got to tell us what happened. So I wrote another novel, Cowboys and Angels. And then I felt that I could do a follow-up. So I wrote the follow-up, which is I Will Survive. And when I finished that and people read it, they said, look, you can't leave it like that. What, what happened? <laughs> so uh, I, we had the lockdown. So I decided only about 12, 18 months ago, um, I, I found it very hard for the first year with the lockdowns. I couldn't really get motivated because I didn't know when it was going to end or if it was ever going to end the way it was going. So I didn't really want to spend time writing, uh, not knowing whether I would a, a ever cruise again or the books would ever come out, you know. Um, so about 18 months ago, I decided to write the third in the series, and they are all standalone novels, but I wrote the third one, and I've now got a resolution to my characters and the situations. And uh, the, the, the basic um, setup of it is you've got one female lady called Zita who was a member of the Israeli Mossad, but she dropped out and bought a houseboat in Amsterdam called the Madonna and she lived on there really undercover but working for an Amsterdami gangster but she was very low-key and she thought that she was invisible a gentleman from London who was an alcoholic and drug addict called Liam Riley was forced to leave England and he ended up in Amsterdam and a few months after going there and opening the love shack he met Zita. So the three books really follow their situation right through to the end. Um, but, but in this, in uh, Born to Run, they actually have to come back to London because the Mossad actually have had enough of them using, or Zita, using their history and their links and everything else. So um, at the beginning of the novel, they are attempted to be assassinated by a sniper but he fails, and so the only thing they can do is go to London. So the book really is Sita and Liam leaving Amsterdam, coming to London, sorting out all the problems that have hung around them for the last two books, and then eventually going back to Amsterdam. Uh, It's a thriller. It's quite violent in places because that's sort of life gangsters, drug addicts, drug dealers, um, prostitutes and pimps is a is a, a dirty underworld, you know. It's a very dirty belly, underbelly. So um, you've got to put it in the book. You can't really be too violent, but again, you've got to put in what works within the story. Mm-hmm. What? And I, I have to say too, yeah, it is. It is. It is real. It is gritty. It is raw. And the first one I read was the middle of that trio or trilogy called "I Will Survive." And uh-huh. yep. if someone were to ask me about it, because, yes, it is a thriller, and that is no joke, folks. That is not just a, a category to put it into. When I say thriller and Graham Slater, I mean, I mean, it comes out, it opens like the, the busting Bronco ride at a rodeo. Yeah. Have you ever yeah. been to well, a ro- what I rodeo to I mean, on I TV? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 No, yeah. I mean, I I read a book. I read a book at least one book a month. I do a book review show, a ten minute review of a book every month. And I've read a lot of thrillers. And I did say last month uh, when I read, it wasn't really a thriller because it would have worked on television as a slow burner. But for a reader, there was nothing thrilling in it except the last few pages. 
And, um, and people have said that to me. Your books are real thrillers, whereas a lot of books, a lot of authors, although they sell millions of books, they are not thrillers. They're, you, know, you could do it in probably in 20 pages. You could write the whole thing in 20 pages, but they mm. often extend them to three or 400, you know. But I like to read. I love to read, and I will read anyone's work. Um, but when you see it, you know, million seller, best thriller I've ever read, um, I don't think it's strictly true. <laughs> so true. Right. So when people even like uh give me an example. Well Lee Lee Child, I mean he's he's finished from writing. The last book he wrote he wrote with his brother, but a friend of mine who used to do the typesetting for Lee Child, I spoke to him last week. He just finished Stump Born to Run and he said that worked. That was really good. And I said, but you get a lot of authors, and they've got recommendations from Lee Child and other top authors, and he, and he sniggered, you know. And I, and I said, what's wrong? He said, well, if you look at it, a lot of those people that have said it's really good and recommend it are also with the same publisher. Oh. <laughs> okay. And as you so, are a professional you, publicist, you, know, you can understand that. Yeah, yeah because you're Sorry? you know the business, and you know that I'm a publicist, and you're a publicist, so we all know what that implies. And uh, yeah, yes, oh, what it yes. what it actually means. Yeah. Well, then that is a legit uh, legit review. You know, it seriously is. Well, if but they yeah, are, yeah. then great. I mean, I I get great reviews, and uh, I'm very proud of it and pleased with it. Uh, I've only ever had one bad one. Um, and that was someone who said, that's my first novel, Ticket to Ride, and he said, oh, the characters weren't developed. Well, quite a few of them died before the end, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite difficult developing characters that I knew as a writer that they were going to die anyway. Um, so, you, you know, you don't spend a lot of time on doing that, but that's the only real um, bad review, if you like, that I've had. But I did put it in the book with the other reviews. I didn't want to leave it out. Oh, very good. <laughs> well, you know, uh, <laughs> Graham, I, can, I only I'm going to talk about in, in just a minute about your uh, the the courses, the the writing classes that you give, but um, I can see why they're, they're so popular. Uh, so yeah, so as I was saying, you know, if you watch a rodeo, if you've ever been to one or watched it on TV, you know, as soon as that door opens and the Bronco, uh, excuse me, the bucking Bronco comes out, it is. It's on. It's on. It's high. It's, it's, on, it's uh, But the other, the, thing, the other thing, you know, Jennifer, sorry to interrupt because there is a slight delay, which is a little bit difficult at times. But when you watch the rodeo, actually, the, the horse is already primed up with a guy on it. So it's, I would sort of compare that to the title and cover of the book. Because before they hit that, that ring and get out there, what well, I assume you call it a ring, before they get into the circuit, um, that horse is already angry and the rider's holding on for dear life before it actually, they, they drop the gate, isn't it? So it's, it's, you know, it's all building up before that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. So, in other words, when you open a Graham Slater book, you better buckle in. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's not right. going to be. <laughs> you're you're not going to put the book down and forget to get it again. You're going to go wait. I got to hurry and finish this so I can get back to the book. Okay. So um, the characters. I got to tell you, I was so grateful for Born to Run because at the end of I Will Survive with the assassination uh, on when mm. uh, uh, Zeta gets the message. And she knows what it means. She knows it's what she's done. She yep. knows why. And this is what she's, she, you know, she knows this is her. This has been her life, and she knows what she's done to cause that uh, she would get assassinated or eliminate. You know, as an ass, it, it's done. Let's just say it's over. And she accepts it, and she just takes that moment for that last dance and hug with Liam, and then. Thinking, oh gosh, I love this character. I love her so much. I don't want this to be over. And you, it's like it's like you heard you heard our prayers from all over the world, Graham. And then, okay, or maybe you already had it planned before the end of that book. But no, I didn't. Still, I didn't have it. it planned at all. I, I I didn't know where it was going to go. And it was only as I say after the lockdown that I um, I did an interview. I think it was November of. 
not last year, the year before, um, just before Christmas it was, it was December, and the gentleman had read I Will Survive, and he, he actually phoned me up. Um, he said, look, I'm, uh, I've got an interview on the station today. It was the BBC in Bristol, actually. Um, and he said, um, I'm going to do an interview, but are you going to write another one? And I said, well, no. He said, you've got to. So we did the interview, and at the end of the interview, I then said, or he asked me, are you writing a follow-up? And I said, yes, I am. And that then got me into it. And I did it. It's the quickest book I wrote, actually, that Born to Run. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, but I knew the characters well already, you see, which is always a help, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. And uh, I always keep thinking, where? I, I, none of us who read you ever know where it's going next. We just know we got to hang on. No. White knuckled, maybe, you know, or hanging on to that that little hook at the at the top of the car above the uh, window on the passenger side, where you hang on if the driver's going too fast. But still, we're there to hang on. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. But that's what I try to do. I try to. I don't. I don't waste. I mean, people. I, I talk to a lot of writers, and they say, "Oh, I've written 120,000 words, uh, and I want to do 130." And I say, "Why?" They said, well, the more words you get, the better it is. And I said, no, if you look at a lot of the James Bond original novels, they're incredibly short, pages in and chapters, just for the sake of it, just to to say I've written X number of words. (laughs) Exactly. It's like like Ian Fleming or Edgar Allan Poe, you know, they run the gamut of styles, but still, yeah, it's always, always quality over quantity. Exactly, but uh, but a lot of people now they my first novel Ticket to Ride I did every day I wrote I used to keep a record of how many words I'd written that session, and it wasn't to sort of build up the numbers it was just to see the best time of day for me to work, and which parts of the book were harder to write so I might only write a thousand words but it could take me six hours, hmm. you know as another time you could do two thousand and you'd do that in two or three hours. Um, and so it depends on the time of day, the mood. Um, there is a good time. We've all got good day, good times and good days and good weather to work in. And once you know what that is, then writing can be a lot easier because there's no point sitting there, um, you know, go, oh, I don't know what to do. I've got writer's block, which I honestly don't believe exists. What it means is you haven't researched your characters and you're not sure what your story is about. But once you know um, and you find that, in a winter evenings for me are brilliant because I don't look at the clock. I have my dinner at, say, 5, 6 in the evening, and then I'll sit in my study until I've really gone as far as I can. And sometimes it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and I, I don't even know it's that time, you know? Whoa. <laughs> I think that's called, you know, you're in, you're in the game right there. You are totally uh, into the world and the story. Exactly. And I think that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I had... I've never heard, I've heard people talk about, oh, I wrote this many words. How many words did you write today? Blah, blah, blah. Or set, a, a, set some kind of a goal for this many words. And I like your philosophy so much better. It makes so much more sense. You said you counted to make, to see what was a better time of day to write. Or when was a better that's time, right. a better circumstance. Uh, that's yeah, brilliant. and I mean, some people, I mean, my kids have grown up, luckily, but... And it was a great journey with them. But, you know, um, I can do it whenever I want. But there are certain times of day that I can't really fire on all cylinders. So what I tend to do then, if I I have got the the book up, I would just flick through it. Because when I write, I actually type messages to myself within the words. So if I write something and I think it's poor, poor or rubbish, I'll actually type that in capitals. This is rubbish. You need to sort this out. And I'll carry on. Um, and other times, if I'm not really in full flow, I'll just spin the pages and just start working on certain words. I mean, if I, if I need a certain word and it's not right, I will put a slash and then I'll write any other word I can think of and then highlight it in a color. And then when I've got that time, when I think I've got a couple of hours, let's have a look and tidy up some of these chapters. So I will work on those little bits and maybe come up with a totally different word and get rid of all the others. Ah, okay. That's 
that makes sense and obviously works. Well, here's another aspect to your writing. Um, it's another part, a uh, very important part of your life. Uh, you worked and lived, you were a working musician, uh, not only in England, but in Hamburg, Germany, and toured for much of the 60s. You played the Hammond organ, oh my gosh, and worked even mm. at, not only in your in your band, uh, but also as a session guy with people like uh, Hendrix, Elton John, uh, Richie Blackmore, James Taylor, Christine Perfect. Um, that's quite a career. Well, it is, but it is, and people say that to me now, as you do, but of course, back then, we were all musicians. We were all doing what we wanted to do. Some of us loved it. Some found it a way of not doing what I would call or some would call a proper job. But if you're creative, um, there is a real buzz when you get on stage, whether it's for a dozen people or 10, 20,000. You get the same buzz because people have come to see you. If they haven't come to see you because you're the support band, then you don't get that buzz. It's, God, let's get off quick, you know. But assuming they've paid to come and see you, <laughs> then you've got a, you know, a, a converted audience there. And that buzz is wonderful. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the problem is, though, you know, Jennifer, is when you come off stage, you know, you come off at 10, 11 or whatever, your adrenaline is really pumping. And that is mm -hmm. why, unfortunately, so many musicians um, fall into the trap of heavy, hard drugs, partying too much and drinking too much because it's a natural thing to do. You come off and you're buzzing, you know, you... You just, what am I going to do next? I've only done two hours. What am I going to do the rest of the night or the morning, whatever you've, time you've finished? And you do need that release. Now, if you're doing a tour, as I did with Fats Domino, for six weeks with only one night off, Jeez. that's a long time to get hooked into all those things, you know? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, you're right. That's, that's another thing you, different from a regular or alleged proper job is that, you can't just start your work time off, I'll make a few phone calls to my friends, maybe read the paper, have some coffee. No, when it's start time, you're off. <laughs> you are there. Well, that's you right. And of course, 110%. It uh -huh. but, but it starts earlier than that because you've, you're driven or flown to the next town or city, and you, you take me to your hotel, and you, you know, you're booked in by the tour manager. Then you're taken to the, the venue with a stadium or whatever, and you do a soundtrack. Um, well, that could be sort of early afternoon, but you're not on stage until 9 o'clock in the evening. Now, some of the, the venues that we did across Europe were ice rinks, and they were outside of the city. And the tour bus wouldn't take us back to the hotel, because if we'd have gone back to the hotel, we'd have fallen asleep, maybe missed the gig. Um, and as the poor guitarist did at the end of a fat tour, one from the... One from the end, he died from a heroin overdose in Amsterdam, and that was that was literally the, the, the penultimate gig that we were going to do. Um, and so, by you know getting into the venue and hanging around, you you start drinking, then you drink too many coffees, um, you get bored, you maybe you know get into a few drugs or whatever, and then you've got that long period before you go on stage. So you you you're up having the sound check, you're happy. Then you've got hours of doing nothing. Now, sometimes you can sit down and write songs or, you know, you, you, you meet up with a couple of people and you sit in a room and have a chat or do whatever. But it's that time in between. So you're, you're up, you're down, then you're on stage and then you come off again. And, uh, and that is the problem. And, of course, you've got to be up reasonably early the next day to go on to the next venue, which could be several hundred miles away. Oh. That, that, that's a rough life. Well, it is. I mean, it, because it, it, when you're playing, that's the best time. You know, a couple of hours, it's fantastic. But the, the other 22 hours in the day really is, is incredibly boring. And most, most musicians will tell you that, whether they're the, you know, the Stones or, or anyone else. You know, they still have periods of time. I mean, people like the Stones have a, a couple of, they have their own room backstage, you know, with equipment and, TV, drinks, food, whatever. So they are in a, in a little cocoon then, and then they go on stage. So that is a little bit easier. But back in the 60s and 70s, we didn't have any of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It was very different, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So tell us then, I mean, obviously since um, all, you, you have traveled, and one thing that, um, you know, people, well, I know here in the, in the United States, uh, when we read or learn about friends who live in England, realize that you're so close, you know, because of your proximity to Europe, you know, people uh, get to travel more, travel to, you know, Germany or France or somewhere. Uh, obviously, your mm. travels and your career in the music business, which was uh, a, a serious career, um, has to have a lot of effect on giving you the authenticity authenticity or the agency to write so uh, colorfully and brilliantly and uh, truthfully about the things that you see or the, excuse me, the things that yeah, you to see in I, your books. Well, that's right. And I, I say to writers, and you talked about the cruises, I say, you know, write about what you know, or if you don't know everything, then you've got to research. So, in I Will Survive, if you remember, it was in Estonia, which is um, in Tallinn, Estonia. They were in Hamburg. They were in Berlin. They were in uh, the Canary Islands. Um, they were in all these different places. Well, those are places that I've been, and I know them. And so, therefore, um, uh, when I write, I, I basically rough out where it's going to be or what it's going to be, and then I research, or if I'm on a cruise, then I'll say, right, Estonia is a great place, Tallinn, a beautiful medieval city, then that will be a location for one of the events within the book, which is what I did, of course. But you've got to know it, you've got to see it, you've got to smell it, you've got to look for the street names, you've got to look at what's there, anything that you can put in the book to make it of interest, not just fill the pages. So research... Um, and experience really is paramount, in my opinion, before you even start writing. Yeah, it is. and that's another value. Uh, that was another value add, as they say, for me, because um, I had been to Amsterdam twice, and I'd been to Canary Islands uh-huh. once, and you took me back. You know, places that I, that I would love to revisit and haven't had the opportunity to as of yet. You took me back to the exact places where I've been. And if not all, if I hadn't been to all of them, I've been close enough to know or at least see over the <laughs> canal or whatever to the place you were describing. And that was just absolutely yeah. delicious in itself. Well, I think I think it's very very important. I mean, Without knocking Lee Child, because he's a multi-multi-millionaire, incredibly successful, sold more books than I probably ever will, because he's written a lot more. But in one novel I read, part of it was set in Hamburg. And um, I read it and I thought, he hasn't been to Hamburg, because there's nothing there that mentions or links to anything that is there. And I watched a documentary on YouTube where he was challenged by a, a lady in America about one of his books, and she said, you know, you've mentioned a a city, Chicago, I think it was. She said, but they haven't got that there, and they haven't got this, and they haven't got that. And he stood up, and he said, I'm the writer. If it's there in my mind, it's there in the book. And she said, but that's not real. He said, it doesn't matter. I'm the writer. I write what I want to write. Now, I don't believe in that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and he can say that, can't he? He can say what he likes, you know. But I wouldn't want to do that. I want, well, to, I want the, the the feedback, just as you have said. It's like you're there, you've been there, you know what it's like. That's what I aim for. And so much so that when, uh, when even a place I haven't been, you put me there, and I love to travel. And so you and and books are a way to travel, and you really put us mm-hmm. there. And, I could picture, you know, one thing, one thing, uh, say when you're in Amsterdam, uh, or when I was there, and every time you stop somewhere for a cup of coffee or coffee, you know, a waffle or something, uh, you never get a cup of coffee or any kind of coffee drink 
without them giving you some little snack, some little snack with it, maybe a little cookie. That's right. That's right. With it. Yeah, those things are always there that, that I miss when I get back home. Um, but you had me sit there with my coffee and my little and my little treat they give you, and uh, it's like it's like my God, he's like science fiction. He takes me back there, you know. And, to, and in a way, you know, when people say write what you know uh, and learn about it, then again, of course, science fiction. Yeah, there you are the writer and you do make up the world. You know, you create the world and the characters and yeah. the species or whatever. But uh, you do just enough of that to. To give me, uh, to give us all, to give all of your readers, a uh, an instant transport. Oops. Yeah, Time and, and I want to do that. I mean, I think, and, and the sort of food that they have, the sort of restaurants, the places. Um, I mean, the new one I've just started that is set in England, but one of my characters has dreadlocks, and I've had to research where in the town he would go because it's a real town. Um, to have his dreadlocks, his straight hair turned into dreadlocks, and what it would cost. So I've had to look at that, and I've spoken to the gentleman that does it, and I'm going to go to a tattoo parlor in a couple of weeks just to chat to one of the people there just to find out what sort of ink they use and everything else, where they get their needles and stuff like that, so that when I come to write it, it will be some real. And if I've never had a tattoo, so anyone who hasn't, they won't know the procedure. They'll guess it, but they won't know the procedure. So I want that. And it's only a half a page even, you know, but I want <laughs> it to be right. Yes, yes. And that's why your readers love you so much. Uh, tell me, though. <laughs> well, I, I, I assume it is, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So to come uh, more about specifically your newest book, Born to Run, the two main characters, Zeta and Liam. Now, Zeta is, I uh, have ex-Massad, uh, I'm in Israel. Tell us about, for people who don't know what that is, and her connection with it. Okay. Well, the Mossad is the Israeli Secret Service Special Forces. When they have problems, they will send out one or two of their Mossad elite, um, and they will either assassinate someone and disappear without being found, they are recognized as being probably the best in the world, better than the SAS in the way the SAS work, better than the CIA, FBI, probably CIA, actually. But they are trained thoroughly, not just in um, weapons and ordnance, but in languages. They learn several languages. They don't go out. If they, can't, they don't go to Afghanistan if they can't speak it. They won't go to, uh, I don't know, Germany if they don't speak German fluently and have a full background. So they, they're able to just disappear into the, the world, into the masses, do what they need to do, and get out. And if, if there is any terrorism involved, they will go in and sort that out as well. And they're in and out in a flash, and they're incredibly well-trained. And that's why Zeta was able to do what she spoke five languages. Uh, she'd learned all sorts of MMA and stuff like that, martial arts. Um, she just, well, in the book, she just disappears, you know, she's, one minute she's there, she changes her look completely, um, she just does so much, she's, um, a very, very clever young lady, and, and a lot of the Mossad um, operatives, um, are like that, so they're very secretive, they're given different names quite often, in fact, they are given different names, and they're just set loose in the world to sort out a specific problem or problems, and so with all of her skills and plus all of her knowledge about the specific um, I don't know, assignments or missions that she's been on that mm-hmm. is valuable uh, intel, um, how, does she, how does one become like her where she's living off by, you know, not really involved all the time? And she's off, gotta, off, off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what she, what she did in the book, I don't want to give it away. I'm not sure if you've read it yet. I did send you a copy. But, but she um, – she does a deadly deed in uh, Switzerland, in Zurich. And while she is there to kill a banker who's been financing um, the Arab terrorists, she actually, uh, he says, don't kill me. She says, okay. And she, he actually pays her through secret bank accounts a lot of money. She shouldn't have done that. And nobody knows that at the time. But they do find out. But many years later. So with that money, she buys the houseboat in Amsterdam and decides then to disappear. 
Now, in the book, they say they would have known where she's been all the time. Whether they did or not, I don't know. I think that's more of a bluff, but um, they said they knew where she was and they could have killed her any time, and Liam, if they wished. So um, she was able to keep out the way for as long as they wanted her to be. So it was a very clever move, uh, move on her, um, her handlers and the, the main guy running it to let her stay there, um, thinking she's safe until she gets the telegram, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you as one of those. You may be gone, but you're never forgotten. <laughs> exactly. We know where you are, and that that was, and that came to me as an afterthought, to be honest. Because um, Born to Run, there were a lot of things in there that uh, obviously I didn't know about her and, and Liam, and I had to imagine it. I'd been on a cruise, so I was able to think it through a bit. Went to Amsterdam again, and then I went to London, and I, I just checked out the east end of London, which is where they, uh, Liam's parents were based. And so I had to research the streets there and, and just make sure, and the house that Liam's wife lived in and where his father lived, um, because the houses, the gardens link each other. England's, England's houses are quite strange that, you know, houses back onto other houses linking gardens, you know. So I wanted their houses to back onto each other and where there was a, a big scene, I wanted that to be near the River Thames, in an area that they could just, they could disappear. Liam and his father could disappear in an hour. That was very important to me. So I had to research that and walk those streets and just get a feel of where they would be, how they would do it. They've got to be able to do it. You can make up anything and, and come up with made-up streets and various transport or whatever, but it's got to work. When I write it, I want it to work. I don't want people emailing me and phoning me saying... That's terrible. That couldn't possibly have happened because that street is three miles away. <laughs> and, and I've got to admit, I, I'll be one of those because people will talk about. Uh, at, at, obviously, I'm uh, from the South U.S. and Atlanta, Georgia, where I was born and raised. And it, I will notice right. differences and think. Now, no, that is. We don't all. Um, no, we don't do that. That's a myth. That's not constant. Um, when in the movie, uh, there was a TV movie. Uh, I may have mentioned this to you about uh, Mark David Chapman and killed John Lennon, and the way he talked on the car- the yes. actor talked on there. Okay, and I said um, I don't. I didn't know Mark David Chapman. But no. the rest of my family did. Uh, his dad worked with my dad sometimes. His brother was in Scouts, so my mom knew his mom, his family, and all that. So he was from my neighborhood, all right. and the rest of my family knew him, but I didn't. But I can tell you this. Mark David Chapman grew up in Gresham Park in southeast Atlanta. If he talked, as and I forget who the actor was that played him, if he he had him talking like a some kind of a mid-1800s, Riverboat gambler. If he talked like that in oh, that really? area of Atlanta, no, honey, he would not have lived long mm-hmm. enough to kill anybody. He would have been. That was a mean neighborhood. It would. He would have been beaten up, whooped, run out of. No, he wouldn't. Wouldn't have lived that long. <laughs> he yeah. did not talk like that. No, but that to me, you see, um, not a perfe- I'm not a perfectionist, but I want to get it right as much as I can. But I, I would blame the film producers and the directors for that because there is no excuse for that. I mean, I, I, I watch a lot of films on television and we have British actors playing Americans and the accents all over the place and <laughs> Americans playing British actors over here so they can sell it to America and vice versa. But they've got to try to get it right because accents here around, around England are very, very different and... Uh, you know, you've got to get it right. So in a film like that, which was, um, you know, quite horrific when you think of the, you know, what happened in it, they should have got it right. And in all honesty, I don't feel there's any excuse for it. Mm-mm. No. No, not when there's so much information available and audio. If I want to listen to something, I can always go to YouTube or somewhere and listen to someone speak in a certain area uh, if I wanted to learn their exactly. accent. Exactly. And, yes, and by the way, yes. I have read Born to Run. I thank you so much 
for sending me a copy. And oh, I just got to be real careful how I talk to you about it because I don't want to give away. I know, I know. Iota. <laughs> did you like the resolve at the end, though? I did. I didn't expect did, it did the way it was. Did you like that? I, I did. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, but I got to tell you, I had to wrestle with it. You know, because you get so involved what, in the characters yeah. at the, by the end of three books. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Okay. Yeah, good. because because <laughs> Liam's mother and father really weren't, weren't featured very much in the first book in Love Shack, you know. And I had to, re when I wrote this one, I had to research them and work out, I'll learn a lot more about them that I didn't know before. Um, so yeah, it, it took me a bit of time, but yeah, with, they are different characters. That's why each book is a standalone novel, really. You can pick up one, any of the three, and still go back and read the earlier ones, um, and it still works, you know. True, that's very true. Yeah, yeah, because before you, you know, we were we we, we had a uh, an inkling of his of a relationship with his father, and. Um, you know, he had had a wife and so forth, but you would just give us like little tiny glimpses, like you were just sort of like you were like you were yes, opening yes. The, the lid to a gift and then shutting it back up. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah, because I didn't know what, was, what, was the fact, what they were going to do. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but that was that yes. was deliberate in a way because otherwise the book would have been much longer and it would have gone off on a tangent. And as I said earlier, I want the books to move forward. At a pace so that, and normally pages are, the chapters are six pages long on average, um, not necessarily six, but as near six as I can get it. So if I start filling in uh, other things, other aspects of the characters um, that wouldn't make any difference, then I wouldn't put it in. But I needed it for the third book, and uh, that's why I spent quite a bit of time working out ages. I always work out ages backwards. Um, you know, the parents' age, his grandfather, whatever, the ages have got to work mm -hmm. uh, when they were born. So otherwise you could have kids and you're only 20 years old and you could have three kids, you know, and um, <laughs> to 32, which meant that his children would be older. And he had twins, of course, twin daughters, which again was very important to me. Right. <laughs> Another thing, too, and I think this also draws, this also draws on to your... Uh, uh, some of your skills as uh, you've written teleplays and screenplays, am I right? Yeah, yeah, I've written well three TV series, never been made, but I've written them and I've had I've had options on them and screenplays. I've got it's an option with an American company um, on my historical novel and the script I wrote from that, and I've turned that now into a five-part um, series, and I'm just waiting to hear what's going to go on there, but. That I started out writing scripts, and that gave me a lot of insight into dialogue because, again, dialogue, you don't want words in dialogue that mean nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you listen to people on a bus or a train, they say very little. You know, mm -hmm. about the weather or they're going fishing or they're just going shopping or they've got a backache or something, but they don't actually talk in detail. So when I write dialogue, it's got to make sense and it's got to move the story on. It's no good two or three people talking about the weather and, oh, it's going to rain or we just had a hurricane, so I got, you know, the windows have been blown out. You can work on that because you can get rapport with that, But um, especially if someone who's never been in a hurricane. But, no, I, dialogue's very important. So writing scripts helped me a lot. And when I watch any film uh, on television, I always have the words on the bottom, the text, mm. because you see how little people say. And I also, while I'm watching it, I, in my head, write the action part, the movements, you know, um, the, the things that people are doing. He's coughing, he's scratching his head, he's kicking his heels, snapping his fingers. I, I write all that while I'm watching a film. Ah, okay. Yeah. So that is why... But there it trains so my mind. It trains my mind, you see. Uh-huh. And it... Okay. All right. I can see that now. Um, you have ways, okay, say in uh, Love Shack, see, I'm trying not to give away Born to Run. In Love Shack, um, when there is the, the character, the, the, the wealthy, I call him mobster, gangster guy, has got this elaborate yep. Yep. escape scheme. I mean, you talk about an exit strategy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> and it's like, and and when you describe it, it the the way it was put together, where he has that secret underground place, and it's so sophisticated, and the other car waiting, and it is. It's in a way it seems like you know okay this is like definitely out of James Bond but you write it so uh, to me now I, I'm not a writer of fiction but to me as a reader it came across very cinematically I could see it I could watch it like I was watch like I was kicked back on the sofa watching it on TV I could see it right there <laughs> That's but it right, it. well a lot of a lot. Yeah, well, a lot of people say that, because I think I started writing scripts, that's probably how I write, you see. And a lot of people say, oh, it's very visual. It's almost, it's not like a script, but it's visual. And I want people to actually see it. And I close my eyes, and when I read it, when I've written sections, I will then close my eyes, or I'll half close them, and I'll read it, and I'll, I'll act it out in my mind, you know. And different characters talking in a different way, because otherwise dialogue the characters will end up all speaking in the same way so you've got to make sure and i have photographs on the wall of the characters to make sure that i can see what they look like and i'll let you and your listeners into a secret zeta is based on the south african actress sharice theron oh all right yeah Boy, we Over here, she's, she's, she's been in um, mad max she's been in loads of films yeah um, but she is wonderful, and um, you know her, her different looks that she has. So when I started writing, I think she's a great actress. And when I started writing the original Love Shack, I needed a character, so her picture was on my wall with the name Zeta in under it, so I can see her movements. Or I mean, she acts in many different ways, but um, you you know where she is and who she is, you know. Oh, yeah, yes, and so yeah, definitely. And Charlie's their own. I mean, excellent. Excellent call there, um, but yeah, this is where this to me this is where one of your superpowers is so prominent. You are able to, even though we're reading the words, you make us feel, or made, definitely made me feel like I'm watching it happen, not yeah, just reading. Yeah, well, that's great. Thank and you I very thought, much. And I'm going, and I'm and then I get through and I close up, you know, or I stop reading for the evening and I go. Graham, what kind of voodoo have you got? Well, my wife says the same. You know, I don't swear. Um, I, I don't think I even swore when I was a musician, to be honest. Maybe on a bad night when people were making mistakes or I was making mistakes. But but I don't swear. Um, so it's very difficult to type all the words. But my wife says, <laughs> how can you imagine this? She said, I've been married 54 years. And she said, how on earth is your mind coming up with this? And and when we talk to people when we're out and about and they've said, I've just read your book called The Violence, she said, I don't know where he gets it from. But what happens is you get taken over by the characters. The characters take over. But you need to know them well enough to allow them to do that. And that's why I, I always work out a backstory and I have a photograph of who it is. So they exist in my mind. Then... I also want to make sure people know, because I know this is coming back. Um, yes, you do have a book called Write On. It's on creative writing. Um, if you're an author, if you want to be an author, if you want to write even short stories and don't know what to do, you should get this book, Write On. It, it's, a, it's like having – it's like Graham is suddenly your pal, and he's right there giving you all the information and guidance that you could possibly want in a book. Um, it was, it's, um, you can get it on his website, and it's from Tabitha Music or Tabitha Publishing. Tell us about that. No, the, the best way to get it is, is from grahamslater.com, um, and Slater is S-C-L-A-T-E-R, grahamslater.com, or on Amazon. They're all on Amazon as e-books and as paperbacks. Um, but right on was written for, I say, people on the cruise ships because I, 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 I give a, a, a look into family history, um, to script writing, um, and coming up with a novel from scratch, which I came up with sitting at a little seaside town called Brixham, which is near us. And there's photographs of the characters as well. And it shows you how it all works and how things come together. So. Um, it's, it's a great book. I mean, when I, when I started writing, I went to our local 
um, library and I took out every book they had on script writing and creative writing. I was so disappointed because they all said different things. Um, there were no, no two of the books actually telling you to do it the same way. And it was so different that it, conf well, it confused me massively. I really was confused. And I said to my wife, look, I'm going to get rid of these books. Um, I'm going to take them back because they're all telling me to do different things. And, you know, I just didn't know what to do. So you know, I almost self-taught there, really, Jennifer. But now I know where I am and what I'm doing. I thought, well, write on would help people. Mm -hmm. And there were lots of links in the back, you know, to, for publishing the ISBN numbers and how to do this, how to do that. So it, it's a great help. I'm not, not selling it as such, but it's, if you want to start writing or you're thinking about it, it's well worth having a read first. And look who the big sellers are in there. You'd be quite surprised. <laughs> uh, and also, just uh, for people listening to know that, I will be sharing uh, the link to Graham Slater's website on all the social media for Madame Perry Salon as well as on my personal social media. So it, it should see it there, and if somehow you miss it, always ask me. You can always look up Graham Slater, or you can always ask me as well. I'm happy to share it. And so, yeah, so tell us then about, while well, we still have time, since we're talking about writing and about, I mean, I would love to take your class, and I would love, I uh, hope to do it in the next, uh, maybe in the next year. But tell us about your courses on the cruise ships. That is fascinating to me. Okay. Well, I, I talk on creative writing. I also do talks on, believe it or not, the 60s, the Beatles in Hamburg, myself in Hamburg, orchids, <laughs> tulips. The Canary uh -huh. Islands, I do lots of talks. Um, I, I, Agatha Christie, I do what they call um, enrichment talks. I do those in the main theatre. But my creative writing talks are normally to maybe 20 or 30 people. Um, and depending on the length of cruise, because I only do it on the sea days. So the last one I did, which was Christmas and New Year, I did eight talks. And um, what is great is the ship stopped my books in the ship shop. So people start buying them. By the end of the cruise, they're coming up to me, asking me all sorts of questions about the characters mm. and why I did this, that, and the other. But what I, what I try to do, they are, they are classes, but they're very relaxed. And what I try to do is take the fear out of writing. I show people something I always start with. is a timeline, which is an Excel spreadsheet, very simple to do. I show them one of mine, and I show them one of J.K. Rowling's. Now, J.K. Rowling's are all handwritten. Mine are mm. typed on the computer because I can't read my writing. Once I go over the lines, it's a mess. Um, but she actually, for, for her um, Harry Potter, I've got one for one of her Harry Potter novels, and it just shows how you work and not to be frightened of, you know, putting rings around things and having options and that. So I talk about timelines, which is very important. I also talk about backstory and how people need to know their characters before they start to write their book. Um, I talk about family history books. I talk about writing in the different genres. I also tell them that your town or city, if it's fictitious, a great way to do it is to get a free tourist map of a town and use the real streets when you start writing and then once you've got your book well and truly on, if you want, then make it a fictitious town and change the names of the streets. But you actually hmm. can see the map. You've got the map of where you're going. I talk about whether you write in the, the first, second, or third person. I always write in the third. The first, I find, is quite potentially difficult. Second, very few people write in the second uh, person. So I do that, and then I talk about the word count, as we did earlier, um, chapters, breaking it down, um, and I just work through in the course of the talks. I mean, if you're only three or four, then it's quite difficult. But what, what happens, Jennifer, is people will then talk to me during the cruise, and I'm happy to chat. I talk to anyone, you know, and some people actually bring things on the ship for me to read, and um, oh, it's very hard for me to comment because some of it they expect... Yeah, well, some have spent years on it, and it's really bad. Oh. <laughs> but I can't tell them it's really bad. I just say that you need to 
go back and rewrite it with a certain angle, um, you know, rather than how you see it. Yeah. Uh, and biographies, I talk about that as well, and how you should work that out and only put important things in. No one wants to know what you have for your lunch, but they want to know where you had your lunch and why you had your lunch on the Eiffel Tower in Paris, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. You don't just want to say, oh, I had my lunch uh, in the corner shop. You know, it just doesn't work. So you've got to be critical of your own work and not rely on close family to read it and give you comments that are negative. Mm-hmm. Because they're all going to say, I love it, even if they haven't read it, you know? True. Or they might say, you should change this, and they could be totally wrong. What they think should change would be the, what the readers love. That's exactly. Don't like that name. Why? Well, I just don't like it. Well, <laughs> it works for me. I mean, because, I, I, again, another one I talk about is the names of the characters. I take ages working out names and not having two names that are similar because readers will get confused. Um, not putting too much description in of the character every time a new one appears, or describing a chair over two pages. You know, people do that, because they get the word count up, so they describe a chair, or a carpet, or whatever, and no one cares. <laughs> so I go through all those things, and because I've done it, you see, they're, they're, I'm able to talk to them in a way that I know works, but I do say everyone, timing, writing, everyone is different, and you've got to decide how you're going to do it. Some people don't have a computer. Some people write it longhand. Well, to keep editing longhand is very difficult, but a gentleman you've probably heard of called John le Carré. Yeah. Famous, he's dead now. He lived quite near us. Well, he... I, I met him a few years ago now, and I said, how do, you, um, how do you edit your books? He said, well, I don't edit them. I write longhand on paper. I said, oh, right. How do you do it? He said, well, I've got two tools. I said, right. He said, I have a pair of scissors and a stapler. <laughs> so what I do is I cut, the, yeah, I cut the pages up and staple it together and then give it to my wife to type. And then I'll read it and then edit it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a method I've never heard of. It may be uniquely John le Carre. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and, and I always say carry a notebook. I've got notebooks everywhere, but don't rack it right on the back of the page because you might want to rip the page out. And if you've written on the back, the back of that page may not be relevant to the front or you mm. may miss it. I always keep your notebooks, put a line through it when you've typed it up. So I have notes, I've got five books of notes here for my new book. Tiny little bits, the odd word, the odd line, the odd situation. And I've got to, and I'm dreading get, getting into the book because I'm not sure where it's going to go yet. Um, <laughs> and I say, if there's anything you want to find out or you want to research, write that in the back of the book so you don't lose it. So um, whatever it may be. And then I also go to um, the tourist offices uh, wherever I'm, I'm writing about, and I ask them to send me a map, and I ask them to point out things that are of interest. Or I will go to those places and search it out, and I'll walk the streets where my characters are going to go to see what situations could come up. Um, you know, it might be a crossroad, and there aren't any lights, so I've got to cross that road. So that's quite an important thing to put in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Graham, this is such a... Uh, it's all... <laughs> It's always, always an absolute delight to talk with you, and 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 it's always a delight and a thrill to grab hold of one of your books and just take off on an adventure. Uh, thank you so much for your music that you, you know, to me, people who do what you do have your talent, music, musician, a writer, all the things that you speak about. You are the most generous people because you share these wonderful things you do with the rest of and thanks to uh, modern technology, more of us have a chance to read you, uh, listen to you, listen to interviews, and get to know you. I will be sharing GrahamSlater.com and all of your um, 
uh, links to all of your work on all of my social media, and I am so grateful. I wish you so much success, even co- continued success with what you do, and hope to get to meet you on one of these cruises one day and wish the best to you. It would be nice, uh, wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd be great. Wouldn't, trouble is, we wouldn't stop talking, would we? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, if I was smart, I would do le- I would do less talking and more listening, so I could really learn from you. So, um, thank you so much, okay. everybody. The new book is Tell Them, Graham. Born to Run by Graham Slater with a C C L A T E R. Born, that's right. Born to Run. I'm going to run and get this book. And thank you so much. Um, I think I'm going to go out instead of with my song. I'm going to go out with our mutual friends, Jill Simpson and Loving Kind. And uh, a place to call our own. Graham, thanks. Hurry back. We love you and all the best. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.